0: Hello and welcome to Hillcrest to Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Wanted, Dead and Alive. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman.
1: Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians 2, 9-15. through 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God bless the reading of his word.
0: So what if I told you that there was something that would help you overcome the shame of the past, and the pull of temptations in the present, and the fear of the of the fear of death in the future. And what if I told you there was one thing that could accomplish all of that? Some of you would say that sounds too good to be true. And then what if I told you that that one thing was baptism? Your doubt would deepen. Because for some of us, baptism, that's just a church ritual, isn't it? I mean, that's something that maybe your parents put you through when you were an infant if you go to a church that christens. Or maybe that's just something that you feel that people do when all their friends are doing at a church camp. Or maybe it's just a routine that you go through so you can join a certain church. How can it do all of these things that I just listed off? According to this passage... Getting baptized and then continually reflecting over the implications of that baptism really can have a powerful impact on your life. It can help you overcome the shame of your past. It can help you deal with temptation in the present. It can help you deal confidently with your fear of death in the future. We find this truth in two of the seven verses that Amy just read to us. For those of you who are new to Hillcrest, a couple of months ago we started a Sunday morning study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. But last week we we parked in this passage, Colossians chapter two, verses nine through fifteen. And I said that we're we're just gonna camp out in these verses. For a few weeks. And last week I asked you to take these verses and every day make these seven seven verses just something to reflect on. So Monday you get up in Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. Read it. And then on Tuesday, Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 15. And then on Wednesday, read Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 15 and on and on for a few weeks. And then come in here and we're just going to hover over these verses and, and, and drill down into them as much as we can over the next few weeks. Weeks. Now, the reason I want us to do this is that in a compacted form, in just a thumbnail, in these seven verses, we find an outline of everything else the New Testament says about what it means to be in Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you're reading through the New Testament, but that is a very common phrase. And it's interesting because we never speak of being in anyone else. We... We consider John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon important people in the past, but we never say that we're in John Wesley or we're in Charles Spurgeon. But we do speak about our life as a Christian as being in Christ Jesus. In fact, 164 times that little phrase, in Christ, or variations of that phrase, show up in the New Testament. Uh, A.T. Pearson, um, in, a- in 1898, he-, he wrote a little book, which was just about being in Christ. It was an exposition of every place in those 164 places in the New Testament where that phrase shows up. And he says these two words unlock and interpret every separate book in the New Testament. Here is God's own key whereby we may open all the various doors and enter all the glorious rooms in this palace beautiful and explore all the apartments in the house from Matthew to Revelation. And so what exactly does it mean to be in Christ? The reason that I want us to sort of camp out in these verses for three weeks is in just seven verses, we see three things that all the rest of the New Testament tells us about what it means to live in Christ. We see in these verses that it means fullness in Christ. It means fellowship with Christ and it means freedom through Christ. And so last week we looked at a couple of verses in this section. That help us understand what it means to live in fullness. And this week we're going to see that these verses tell us what it means to live in fellowship. I want you to look at verses 11 and 12 again. We focused on verses 9 and 10 last week. We're going to focus on verses 11 and 12 this week. In Him you were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith, in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So there's that phrase, in Him. And what does it mean to be in Him? You, you are circle these phrases, buried with Him, and you are raised with Him. So these verses speak of a fellowship that you and I really have with Christ, a mingling of your life with His, a mystical union with Him. And even more specifically, these verses tell us that we are in fellowship with a particular experience that Christ had, his death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, as, as Christians in the 21st century will often speak of how our lives have been impacted by what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. But these verses in Colossians chapter 2 speak of even more. We've not simply been impacted by what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. We have been united to it. We are in fellowship. We are mystically intertwined with all that Jesus experienced in his death and resurrection because of our fellowship with him. Now, I I want you to think about the implications of this. I want you to think about what Paul is saying. Let's say that you meet a new friend and your friend says, uh, tell me about your life. And you say, well, you know, I was, I was born in Ohio and at 11, I moved to Tennessee and uh, I ended up going to university there and after graduating, I moved here to Austin for graduate school and at, uh, at 22, I died and rose again. At 26, I got married and your friend says, hey, wait, 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 let's back up. What did, what did you just say, you died and and rose again, yeah, that's, that's what I said. How in the world is that possible? And you say, well, at 22, that's when I, I committed myself to Jesus Christ and I made my profession of faith through the waters of baptism and, and, and because I'm united to his death and resurrection, I died and, and rose again. You, you See, that's what Paul is saying here, is that death and resurrection is as much your life history as where you were born and where you went to school and who you married. It's already your history because you are mystically intertwined with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, according to this passage, our fellowship with Christ begins and continues. It begins with baptism. It continues throughout our life as we reflect on the implications of that baptism. So a couple of things I want us to look at, and you can write these things down in your sermon notes and your bulletin. First of all, our fellowship with Christ begins with baptism. Now that's what what we read in verses 11 and 12. Paul speaks of baptism as the very time that you are buried with Christ and that you are raised up with Him. Look at this, verses 11 and 12. In Him, you are buried with Him when? In baptism. Paul said that just as under the old covenant people were inducted into the kingdom through circumcision, he says now under the new covenant in the New Testament times, People are inducted into the kingdom through the ceremony of baptism. And Paul says that what happens in baptism is that you get buried with him and you get raised up with him. Now let's be clear, it's not that Paul is saying the act of baptism saves you. There is no good deed that you could do, no right thing that you could do, that uh, would cause God to convey this sense of transaction you do something for him you do something that he requires and in turn he's going to give to you salvation that's not the way to understand any good deed in the bible including this good work of baptism it is our faith it's our trust in the work of god that is what achieves salvation if you could call it achieving i mean god achieved it and we just receive it like the open hand of a beggar receiving the gift of a king but it's through our faith. So we see this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's look at it again. In him you were buried with him in baptism, which we were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul says that you were buried and raised through your faith and the working of God. But how do we profess our faith? According to the Bible, we profess our faith in baptism. So the normal, natural, expected time to profess your faith is in the waters of baptism. Now, if you're of a certain generation, you've often heard someone say that they made their profession of faith at a revival service. Or they made their profession of faith when they were sitting at a kitchen table with their friend who shared the gospel with them. And they got led to Christ and they made their profession of faith there. Those times are meaningful those times are significant, but according to the Bible, those times are just a step toward your profession of faith. Your profession of faith, according to this scripture and every other, is the waters of baptism. You know, it's sort of like marriage. You know, any woman can tell you the day and the setting in which her boyfriend popped the question and asked for her hand in marriage. Uh, but that pales in comparison to when those doors open in the back and she walks down the aisle toward her fiance and she makes her promises to him and he makes her promises to her and they are married. From that day on, that's the day that she remembers and her husband better remember it too. Right? <laughs> you can get engaged, so to speak. You can you can make a... a commitment to Christ in a revival service or at the end of a a sermon every sermon I conclude with a prayer that you can pray to receive Jesus Christ but that is a step toward the day of your marriage the day of your profession of faith which is in the waters of baptism in baptism just as Christ was buried and rose again so we are buried in the water and raised up again in fact, that's why we use the word baptism to speak of this ceremony. You know, as English speakers, we use the word baptism. It comes from the Greek word baptizo. It's not much of a stretch to realize how we got the English word baptized from baptizo, right? Here's the interesting thing, though. Greek speakers, especially in the first century world, baptizo wasn't a particularly religious word, or at least not to begin with. It was, it was just a common word that meant to dip or to plunge, and so if you were a Greek-speaking sailor, and you were out at sea, and your ship, a storm came up, and your, your ship got engulfed by the waves and sank, and you got up on shore spitting and sputtering, and somebody said, what happened to your ship? If you were a Greek-speaking person, you'd use the word baptizo. It got plunged under the waves. And if you were a woman in the garment-dying industry at the time, and uh, you, you, you took this garment and you, you put it down into the purple dye, you would use the word baptizo to speak of dipping or plunging that garment down into the purple dye. And if you were a person who came to faith in Jesus Christ, you turn to your friend who had shared the gospel with you, and you say, what happens now? If she was a Greek-speaking person, she would say, baptizo, we, we dip you, we plunge you under the water. And, and so we've transliterated that word baptizo into baptize, which means to dip or to plunge somebody into the water. To get dipped or plunged or baptized, this is the normal, this is the natural, this is the expected way. We publicly express our union with the Jesus who died and rose again. But baptism isn't just something you go through as a rite of passage and then move on to other things. The whole point of this passage, verses 11 and 12, is to remember that we are in constant fellowship, we're in constant union with the Jesus who died and rose again. So I want you to write this second point down. Our fellowship with Christ continues as we reflect on our baptism. I said that there are two things we can learn from these verses today, verses 11 and 12. The first thing we learn is our fellowship with Christ begins with our baptism. The second is that our fellowship with Christ continues throughout our lives as throughout our lives we continue to reflect on, meditate over, mull over all, and pull out all the implications of what that baptism really means. You know, this is one reason we believe at our church that a person should be old enough when they're baptized so that they can always throughout their life look back and remember the moment of their baptism. We're not saying that we're the one true church. We're not saying that if you were raised in a church that christened you as an infant, that you know, You know, we have it right and they have it wrong and they're not real Christians. We're not saying that. But every baptism in the New Testament was a baptism of somebody old enough to be able to look back and remember when he got baptized. There's a reason for that. Baptism is a discipleship tool. You know, just as I I look on this wedding ring and I I can remember when I got it. I can remember the vows that I made to Diane. I can remember the ceremony in which this ring was given to me. In the same way, I need to be able to look back according to this passage of Scripture and every other reference to baptism in the New Testament. Paul says it's a discipleship tool. It's something you look back on so you can remember what has happened to you in your union with Jesus Christ. And Christians develop in maturity then as we reflect on that baptism that we can remember and as we align ourselves with the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection. I really like uh, what Mark Fugit wrote in an article for Christianity Today magazine this month. Dr. Fugit is a uh, Baptist pastor, he's a college professor, and this particular article that he was assigned to write was about baptism and uh, he wrote that the Christian life is one of ongoing submersion, that was his phrase. Here's what he said, As a symbol of new birth into eternal life with Christ, I believe the significance of baptism should play a more prominent role in our devotional lives. A life of ongoing submersion means that I wake up every morning with a realization and appreciation that without Christ, I would be living in darkness. As I sit up in my bed, I rise to new life with him again. Each moment is a blessing with a purpose. I like that phrase, a life of ongoing submersion. And you notice what he's saying here is the same thing that I think that Paul is trying to say in this passage and others about baptism is this should be a devotional tool for you. This should be something that you don't just do and move on to other things. You should constantly reflect back over that, pull out the implications of that. He calls it a life of ongoing submersion. Is that the way you see your Christian life? It, it, every decision, every Temptation, every discouragement, every victory. We all experience every bit of that under the meditation of and the reflection over our union, our fellowship with Christ through the waters of baptism. You know, this is what the old Puritans meant when they talked about improving your baptism. Some of us were not too familiar with the Puritans. We we think we know the Puritans because we've read Arthur Miller's The Crucible or we've seen The Handmaid's Tale. So we certainly know that those old Puritans of the 1700s were sour and dour and killjoys, right? And then you actually read what these guys wrote and there is vitality there and there's life there. Yeah, several hundred year old words so sometimes hard to understand what they mean but the Puritans would talk about improving your baptism. And our first thought when we do run across an old phrase like that from the 1700s is, what does that even mean? How do you improve something that's already taken place? And often in your past, we can't get in a time machine and go off and do a better job of it in the past. How do you improve your baptism? But what they meant was, as you reflect over your baptism, as you think about the implications of your baptism, if you remember your baptism was the place where you were united to a Jesus who died and rose for you, you improve your baptism. And that can make all the difference in the world. The more you do this, the more you improve your baptism, as I promised from the start of this lesson, it will make all the difference in how you handle your past, your present, and your future. How you handle your past shame. Think about this. Every one of us have things we regret. We wish we had not done. These the Bible calls sin. And it not only separates us from other people, our relationships break down, it separates us from God, the Bible tells us. The soul that sins, it shall die. That's a Bible verse. But here's the truth. Because you have united to a Jesus who has already died, you have already paid the penalty. The penalty that you deserve for your sin has already been covered by the work of Christ. And you are united to that death of Jesus. And so you see, as you improve your baptism, as you think about the implications of your baptism, you remember that everything you deserve for your sins and your failures has already been paid. It's part of your life history because your life history is mingled with the life history of Jesus. And think about your present. We continue to be attracted to certain temptations, to certain sins of lust or bitterness or unforgiveness, anger, and so on. But as we improve our baptism, as we reflect over it, as we think about it, we remember that we died to an old way of life. So why are we still living in it? That old way of life was buried properly because we are united to a Jesus who was put in the tomb. And so you see, as you reflect over your real mystical fellowship with Jesus who died, that old way of life goes. It's gone. It has no power to pull over your life anymore. Or it shouldn't. And then think about your future. One day, every one of us will die. No one gets out of here alive. And if you're not thinking about it yet, eventually you'll start thinking about it more and more. Does it fill you with a certain anxiety or concern facing your coming death? Remember this, you in your baptism were united to a Christ who not only died but rose again. He is alive today. So guess what? Because your history is mingled together with his history already, you're experiencing life. You're experiencing approval. You're experiencing acceptance before the throne of God even now, even before you experience in its fullness, because your history and Christ's history have been mingled together. So to say that believers are in Christ means that our lives are so intertwined with his life that his death and resurrection in some mystical way is already part of our history. And so, what do we need to do? According to this passage, we need to get baptized, and then we need to continually reflect on the implications of that baptism and that'll help us deal with our past sins, our present temptations, and our future fear of death. You know, one of my earliest memories as a small boy was going with my family to the YMCA swimming pool. I've shared this with you before. I must have been only about five years old when it happened, but I still remember it uh, to this day. My dad, as dads will do, got me up on his shoulders, and very slowly, dramatically, playfully, started walking from the shallow end of the pool where we were just safely at, walking to the deep end of the pool. And I remember how I giggled over how silly my dignified dad looked as he went under the water. Bubbles started coming out of that big man's nose. That hair that was always so perfectly in place with vitalis started to sway in the water. It looked so silly to me. And then recognition came over me as a five-year-old because I was on his shoulders, because I was united to him. His experience was becoming my experience. And I was going down into the deep end as well. And to this day, I remember in my little five-year-old heart how trust and fear and excitement and anxiety mingled together in my little heart over this whole experience that was going on because I was united to my dad's shoulders. You are united to Christ because of your baptism. You're on his shoulders, so to speak. He's taken you into the deep end of the pool. Everything that he experienced, you have experienced. Living a perfect life before God, that's already your history. Because you are united to a Christ who lived perfectly before God. Paying the penalty, dying for what you deserve for your sin, that is already your history because your history is mingled with the history of a Christ who died. Living in approval and acceptance before the smile of God, that is already your history because you are united to a Christ who to this day is living in approval before the smile of God. And for that reason, then, we need to appreciate what it means to be in Christ. This is why I want us to take several weeks in this passage. It's just we don't have enough time, even in three weeks, to look at all the implications of this. But at least we can break it down, slow down in three weeks and see that being in Christ means fullness in Him. We looked at that last week. Being in Christ means fellowship with Him. And then next week, we'll look at what it means to have freedom through Christ as well. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a message titled, Cross Purposes. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest to Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.